0: The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Doug. one of the pastors here at Parkview, and it's my joy to be able to bring God's Word um, to you this morning. Um, If you're new, just again, want to really welcome you. So glad that you're here and that you've joined us this morning. Um, Last week, Pastor Schillinger opened us into a new new series that's going to be called What Matters, most. What matters most. Uh, We're looking with this series at a really unique and incredibly helpful passage of Scripture, a section of the Bible in the Gospel of John. In these chapters, chapter 13 through 17, Jesus is with his disciples and he spends his final hours preparing them for his departure, preparing them for the cross. And as he's with these Men. This is oftentimes referred to as the upper room discourse. He's in the upper room with these men. Um, This is a time where he's intimately instructing his disciples on how their life should look in lieu of his absence. Last week, um, Pastor Doug talked specifically about service and the value of service in the life of a Christian. This morning, our task as we look at the verses in front of us is to focus more specifically on love and how love should be played out And the life of a believer. We will see in this morning's passage that love, it was essentially love that propelled Jesus in his mission. It propels him essentially to the cross. And we will see that it is love that permeates his message as he instructs his disciples. This is going to just come off because it's already fallen off. So, sorry, I'm just going to leave it there so it's not distracting to me. Um, So, our passage this morning is John chapter 13. We're going to start off in verse 31 and 35. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them. Turn to John 13. If you don't, the words will be on the screen. You can um, read with me as I read God's Word. Verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, he, when he had gone out, he is referring to Judas. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him and himself and glorify him at once. Father God, Lord, thank you uh, for the opportunity to come this morning um, to examine your word. Our hope, Father, is that as we sit here and as we look at these words in your gospel truth, Lord, I pray that um, they wouldn't just be words that fall on us this morning, but they would be words that move us to be people of action, That uh, that you would show us the grace, Father, every person in this room, of teaching us how we are to obey your words this morning. Show us how that looks in our lives, Father. We pray that that as a result of this morning, Lord, that you would be lifted up, that you would be exalted, and that you would be glorified. Lord, we ask that your spirit would be here. Teach us your truth. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite albums, um, it's an album that anytime I do any kind of study or any preparation, essentially every message that I have ever taught, I can confidently say, this has been the playlist that is played in the background while I study. Um, It's an album. It's called A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. This particular album is considered by many to be as high as the second or third um, most, you know, best jazz album of all time. Um, For as fantastic as the album is, um, the story of this album and this man is, I would say, even more remarkable. In the spring of 1957, his dependence, John Coltrane's dependence on heroin and alcohol, lost him one of the best jobs in jazz. He was playing sax and touring with Miles Davis and his popular group when he became unreliable and simply strung out. Alternately catatonic and brilliant, Coltrane's behavior and playing became increasingly erratic. Soon after, Coltrane resolved to clean up his act. Later, when he recorded A Love Supreme in December of 1964, um, in many ways, this album mirrors Coltrane's spiritual quest that grew out of his personal struggles and troubles, including a long struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. He would write in the album liner of A Love Supreme, In the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which has led me to a richer, fuller life more productive life. As you listen to the album, as it starts off, there's kind of a gang of a cymbal, a gong of a cymbal, and then the saxophone begins to, to play in. There's a four-note bass line that really lays the foundation, not just for the opening song, but for the four-set suite. It's uh, four notes that are repeated over and over and over again. They're repeated on the bass, repeated in the saxophone, the piano, Um, Eventually, he mutters them and chants them towards the end of the first song. Uh, Those four notes, I'm not a singer, and this is probably the closest I'll ever get to it in public. Those four notes are very simple. Those are the four notes over and over and over again. That motif, that riff plays through the first song. And it's a theme that Coltrane consciously uses in subtle and careful ways throughout a love supreme he keeps coming back to it and back to it and back to it throughout the album likewise our topic this morning this topic of love is a major theme throughout the chapters of this book throughout the gospel of John in the first 12 chapters The word love is simply referred to, God's love or our love, is simply referred to about 12 times. But for the remaining portion of this gospel, our author will refer to it some 44 times. It becomes, as the cross gets closer and closer to Jesus, it becomes a more central theme Well, it's not just in John, but throughout the entire pages of the Bible. In fact, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, we learn that all of the law, all of the prophets, can be summed up in a single word. Love. Jesus says, you shall, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment, Lord? What is the greatest commandment that we should follow? Jesus responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first commandment. And great commandment. And the second is just like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. It's a motif that keeps coming back to. And same thing for our author here in the book of John. Our passage this morning comes on the heels of two major events. Uh, Last week, Pastor Schillinger mentioned one of them. Talked extensively about Jesus and the washing of the feet of his disciples. It's the first event that it comes on the heels of. is the washing of the feet of the disciples. Before dinner, we're told that Jesus um, goes with his man into what's referred to as the upper room, where there's a dinner, there's a table prepared for them. And as his disciples, his followers, his closest friends sit and recline at this table, there is a common task that Jesus assumes. It's an, an ordinary task, a job that is done daily as they walk in any home and eat at any table, but it's typically a task that's reserved for a servant, a slave, but what's Amazing here is that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, assumes what is a servant's role. He goes around the table and one by one washes their feet. It's an ordinary task done in an extraordinary way. It is, on one hand, a symbolic—it's symbolic of spiritual cleansing. And on the other hand, it redefines how we are to humbly serve those around us. He establishes a pattern that his followers should follow. It's the first event, he washes the feet of the disciples. The second event is the going out of Judas, the going out of Judas. After Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he says, Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. Now remember, these are his closest friends, men who have spent the last three years with Jesus. And he says, someone in this room will betray me. You can imagine the look of disbelief that comes around the, the, the face of disciples as they look at each other. Is he talking about me? Could it be you he's referring to? Peter motions with his hand to John, ask, ask Jesus, who is he talking about? J- John, sitting right next to Jesus, leans over up against Jesus and says, Lord, who, who is he? Who's going to do it? Jesus tells John, it is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then John watches in amazement as Jesus dips the bread and hands it to Judas, his friend. The man who carries the money He's going to betray Jesus. With that motion, Jesus sets a machine that will eventually lead to the cross in place. And then the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are our words this morning. And as we look at them, there's a couple of things I want us to keep in mind this morning as we examine these words. The first thing is that Jesus is headed to the cross. It's very clear that Jesus knows what's happening. He doesn't just know it. He orchestrates the cross. He orchestrates his death. Jesus sets it in motion. The cross is coming. Second thing that's important for us to notice is that while the cross is looming in the near future... Jesus is intentional in his time with his disciples. He's with those who are closest to him. And his heart is to, during this time, instruct them how they should live in his absence. He wants to love them during this time. He wants to comfort his disciples during this time. They no doubt have have an idea that something is about to go down. And Jesus wants to spend this time intentionally with those who are closest to them to prepare them for that. And the last thing that we should see, before we dive into these words, is that His words weren't just for His disciples in that room. His words are for us here this morning. His words are for us here this morning. If you claim to follow Jesus, His words are for you. In chapter 17, as Jesus, after He gets done instructing the disciples, He has a high priestly prayer where He prays to God for these men. And listen to what He says. Chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. I do not ask only for these, not just for these men, Jesus says, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may become one. His prayer that night wasn't just for those 11 in that room. His prayer that night was for you. It was for me here this morning. And so we would do well to listen to them. As we look at these words, we're going to spend most of our time focusing on verses 34 and 35. And in these essentially two verses, we're going to see three things. We're going to see an exhortation to love. We're going to see an example of love. And then we will see the effect of love. So first, the exhortation to love, the command to love. First thing that we notice is that there is somebody in this room instructing, giving a command By definition, if you're here this morning and and you claim Christ and you follow Jesus, you sit under His authority. You're allowing Jesus to have authority in your life, to instruct you on how to live your life. You are subject to His authority. Jesus is issuing a command. He's instructing them on how to live. He's exhorting them on how they should live their life. Paul gets it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6.20. He puts it like this. He said, as a follower of Christ, he is no longer his own. Paul is no longer his own. But he has been bought with a price. He is under the authority of Jesus. Second thing we learn is that there is someone who's giving a command and that there's somebody who he's giving it to. Jesus is instructing and he's instructing his disciples. At the very first verse of this chapter, it says, "So we know, uh, it says, "Now before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus, uh, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to the Father, having loved His own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus is instructing those who He loves. In this passage, he refers to them as his little children." He's loving his children during this time. Judas is no longer present. He left. He's no longer under the authority of Jesus' instruction. Just those who have remained faithful are now with him in this room. And Jesus loves them dearly. Next thing we see is what exactly the command is. The command is simple. Love one another. Again, in his final moments with his closest friends, he zeroes in on that which is the most important, essential, the foundation, a motif that he will come back to time and time again. We see it in chapter 14, verses 21 through 24, where he says, "Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him." Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, "Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world?" Jesus answered him, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him." And he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Then in chapter 15, he comes back to it and says in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Down to 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. The command is simple. It's straightforward. Love. One another love one another what's interesting about the command though is not how straightforward and normal it is it's the fact that Jesus calls it new a new command he says a new commandment I give you love one another if you're listening to that you would say there's nothing new about that if you were his disciples in that room at that night you would say Jesus there's nothing new about loving one another In Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's an Old Testament teaching. That's before Christ, love one another. But Jesus calls it new. So I think our question is, what makes this commandment new? Why why can he call it a new commandment? They should know, it's written in the scriptures, that they should love one another. So what makes it new? I would suggest that there are two things that, make, that contribute to the newness of this command. There are two things that really center around the phrase, just as I have loved you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. In that phrase, there are really two things that jump out as contributing to the newness of this command. The first thing is we see we learn the method in which we are to love. If you were to ask, okay, how do I love one another? Here's how, here's the method, here's the model, here's the pattern you follow. And when we consider the pattern that Jesus gives us, there's, there's three things that speak to this. The first is his life. He spent three years with these men. They got to see him care for them. They got to see him feed the hungry. He got to see him heal the sick. They saw him spend time with the poor. They got to see him love them well. They saw his life. They were witnesses to those three years of ministry. He set in place in those three years a pattern that they should follow in. But the second thing we see is specific to this night is what he just did with the washing of the feet, right? He he washes their feet and then he says to them in verses 14 and 15, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So he, he set them a pattern that night, washing the feet. But there's another way that he's going to demonstrate how they should love one another. That's what he's preparing them for now. And notice in verse 31, he says, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. It's an interesting phrase, the Son of Man. It's a phrase that when it's used in the Old Testament, specifically in Daniel 7, it's closely associated with the glory of God. With the glory of God. But in the New Testament, when it's used, it's often referred to Jesus' humanity and the suffering that would take place by Jesus, by the Savior of the world. Well, the place where God's glory and Jesus' suffering combine is in the cross. It's in the cross that those two things come together. Here, John's use of the term is, is to establish the greatest moment of God's display to glory that would come in the form of the cross. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross and that they should love one another. Nowhere in history have we ever seen such a demonstration of love, that the greatest, most supreme author of history, the creator of the universe, would perform the most sacrificial, humiliating act of service. And he says, this is how you should love. The way I'm going to die on the cross is how you should lay down your life one for another. In chapter 15, verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this. Someone would lay down his life for his friends. That's an extraordinary act. An amazing demonstration of love. And Jesus says, do this. Now, if I just step back for a moment, and I don't know where you're coming from this morning, if if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're not. If you're here and you've been walking with Jesus for years, or if you're new in this thing called Christianity. I don't know. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, if I'm just honest with myself, I would say loving like this is not easy. Laying down my life for, for people who I may not even know, are you serious? How do I do that? He gives us a a pattern. He gives us a method, a model we should follow. We should imitate and copy. But if I have to ask the question again, it's not just how should I do it? The question I would ask is how can I do it? I have a hard enough time laying down my life for my wife and my kids. How, How should I do it for people who I don't even know? It's an extraordinary thing. Do not be mistaken. The idea of love, I think, in our culture has become so thin and overused, easily just flung out there, that oftentimes we can lose sense of what it means. How deep it is and how powerful it is. So what makes, what contributes to the newness of this commandment is not simply Jesus saying, do like I've done. Yeah, I've showed you how to do it. Now go love like this. That's part of it, but that's, Part of it. There's another part to it. I'll give you an example. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, the snowstorm came through town, right? Lots of snow. a lot of fun. Um, if you drove around town the next day or two, you would no doubt see things laying all over the ground. In fact, if you were my neighborhood, you just have to go to my backyard and look at the trees that are all over the ground now. Tree limbs just broken off and laying all over the place. It's a massive mess, right? And on one hand you can look at those tree limbs that are laying down and say that's a tree limb that is a tree limb on the ground it can lay there on the ground in the snow and it can do a pretty good job of copying the limbs that are connected to the tree It can do a pretty good job but then as time passes you start to notice that death and decay set in and become pretty apparent the limb dries up it doesn't produce any branches or fruit See, it's one thing to copy, to imitate the love of Jesus. But you can't do that if you're not connected to the love of Jesus. So the newness of this command, and this is great news for us this morning. This is great news. He doesn't just say, here's the standard, now meet it. He says, here's the standard, and I'm with you. It's not your love, it's my love. In verse 9 of chapter 15, Jesus says, as he prays, uh, yes, he he talks in chapter 9, verse uh, verse 9, chapter 15, he says, as the Father, he's instructing them, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The only hope, folks, that we have of copying this love of Jesus is if we are connected to the love of Jesus. It's not just that we should love like Jesus, it's that we should love in Jesus. That is good news for us. That's good news for me. Because if I think about the way I love people, I'm never going to meet that standard. I'm never going to do it on my own strength. But he calls us to be connected to him. So I would just pause and ask this morning, are you connected to Jesus? Are you connected to... Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, the Bible says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sin have hidden his face from you so that he cannot hear you. There is a massive gulf that exists between people and God. It's called sin. And because of our sin, we are disconnected from God. But there's good news. There's good news. For God has demonstrated his love for us. And that while we're sinners, while we're separated, disconnected from God, Christ died on the cross for our sins. To bring us back into communion with the Father. To reconnect us. With God and so I would just ask if if you're here this morning and that is something you have no idea if you're connected to God if you're abiding in God if you're remaining in God we would love to talk more about that as Pastor Schillinger mentioned there'll be people up here this morning and you could come I'll be here you could come grab me we would love to see if you're connected to God the third and final thing that we learned from our passage here this morning is the effect of of love what result does this love when it's when it's obeyed when God's people learn the importance the value of love in their lives and how they love and care for one another what happens when they do this see it's interesting because until this time when Jesus is in the room with his disciples until this point the way you would know a disciple of Jesus is you would you would look at somebody and you would literally see them following after Jesus Where Jesus would go, they would go. You would see Jesus, the the teacher, the rabbi, and then you would see his disciples at his feet, listening, learning, imitating their master. Well, there's a problem because Jesus is getting ready to leave the earth. You won't be able to recognize a disciple simply by looking at Jesus and seeing who's following him. There's going to be a new mark, a new badge that will show the world who you are. That will show the world who we are. What is that badge? It's love. Jesus is what brought them together, what unites them. And in his absence, as he leaves to the Father, he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the love of the Father is what binds us together. What brings his people together. Just as Jesus brought them together. This love will prove to the world that you are a real, authentic disciple. We see evidence in the New Testament that his disciples understood the importance of loving each other. In Acts chapter 2, it's a great example of what the early church looked like in the New Testament after Jesus went up into heaven. In 42, it says, 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When Jesus left his disciples, his followers understood the importance of community, of being together. Describes their community as as people lacking nothing. They saw a need and they met it. They listened to the teaching. They sat under authority and they lived it out amongst their community. And the watching world saw it. Later in Acts, in chapter 17, Paul goes into a community and as the community responds to him coming in there, the response is, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And I can't help but think, that a large reason while the world was being turned upside down was because of how these people were loving each other. I think one of the greatest miracles in the New Testament church, the early church, was that Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, came together in a way that the world had never seen before. People were blown away. The world was turned upside down. There's a great example in the middle of the second century Um, During the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical experts think that this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. It lasted some 15 years, and historians believe it is responsible for killing anywhere from a quarter to a third of the entire Roman population. Marcus Aurelius, who would eventually die of it, wrote of caravans, of carts and wagons, essentially hauling the dead out of town with the first symptom of sickness, the sick were simply thrown into the streets where they heaped up in piles of dead and dying. But where the vast majority of the Roman world showed zero concern for the sick or compassion, the Christian response was much different. The Roman world's response was, get out of town, stay away, get away from me. You're kicked out the house. Mom, see you later. Dad, see you later. Son, out of here. Right? The Christians' response was very, very different. Rather than deserting them, Christians cared for the sick and were responsible for saving enormous numbers of lives. Christians in the early church cared well for each other. It was by the imitation of Christ that Christians simply lived longer at a time of great misery and disease. In fact, a large reason why the percentage of Christians in the Roman Empire, some hundred years later, would eventually, the Roman Empire would become Christian was because the Christians outlived their counterparts. They knew how to love one another. Their population rose while the others didn't, declined. The early church understood the significance, the importance, the necessity to love each other well. To love each other well. And I think today in our church, um, this is one of the, the reasons why I consider Parkview to be just a phenomenal church, an amazing blessing in my life, is because there are people here who know how to love well. There are people here who know how to love well. If you just look around the church, you see example after example after example of people loving one another. It's phenomenal. And so often, if I think of some, what are some of the barriers, what are some of the things that keep me from loving like Jesus wants me to love? Just a couple examples. I think one is just my personality, okay? I'm a sarcastic person. I think one of the worst things that happened to me was Seinfeld. Grew up on Seinfeld and incredibly, incredibly sarcastic and doesn't always come across, you can just ask my wife, uh, not in the most loving way. All right. So often I think our personalities, some of the things that we have in us can make it difficult for us to love one another. So oftentimes, folks, loving each other well can be kind of messy. And it really is. Loving each other well is a commitment to just being okay with a little bit of mess in our lives. Sometimes I think people, I've often heard people say, well, I just I just say things like I like I see them. I call it like it is. No, okay, that's, that's fine. You have an excuse to be a jerk. That's great. All right. You know, sometimes there's just ways that we relate to each other that make it difficult for us to understand how to love one another. But it's a commitment to that mess that allows us to have some success. I think here at Parkview, the main way, I mean, it's a large church. It's a large church. And the main way, the main structure we have in place for us to assure that you're loved well and that you're able to love others is community groups. That's the main thing as the leadership step back and says, okay, how do as a church, how do we ensure that this is happening here in our church? The main thing we do is we have community groups for you to be connected and with people who can help sh- shepherd you, can help instruct you, who can help care for you, and then you can h- be invited into caring for others. That's the main thing we do at Parkview to make sure this happens. And so really there's, there's one of two people here this morning. Okay, there's those who are in a community group or some sort of group life, and there's those who who aren't. And and I would just say, you know, for those of us who are in it, this is a great thing to step back the next time you guys meet and just say, okay, how are we doing on this? To be honest, to be vulnerable. How is our group doing in loving one another? And if, if you don't feel loved and cared for, we invite you to say that. Let them know. And then for those of us here this morning who may not be connect, connected in any kind of group, in, in a lot of ways, th- this is you rejecting our way of doing this and doing it well. And so if there's reasons why you aren't connected, we would love to hear those. We would love to hear, why, why not? What's not working for you? Bring those to our attention so we can make sure that, that asking you to do this is a, is a very easy thing for you. Another way that I would just ask simply to apply it is remember this way that Jesus demonstrated this love when he got down around the table. That was an ordinary thing. That was something that would happen several times a day. Is to walk into a room, sit around a table, and then have somebody come and wash your feet. There's only one account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's this account. It's the only one we have. So it would suggest to us this is the only time Jesus did that. Okay, He, he took an incredibly ordinary everyday common thing, and he did it in an extraordinary manner. I think as we examine our own lives, we have to ask ourselves, we have to start there. What do I do every day? What ordinary things can I do in extraordinary ways to love those around me? What can you do just in your life? And I think just and kind of in closing, as we are in a period really of transition here at Parkview, as we are transitioning kind of in leadership and, and things are looking a little different, you know, just in terms of the leadership here, one of the things we've been bringing before you guys for the last couple of years or last year or so has been this 2020 vision. What will this church look like in five years? And, and if you look what Jesus says, he says, by this all people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. I can think of no greater testimony to the, the glory of God, the love of God, to our community of Iowa City, Coralville, North Liberty, wherever. Imagine in five years, if, wouldn't it be awesome if people that weren't a part of our church, if the only thing they knew about our church is that we knew how to love? would be an amazing vision? That, that we cared well for the children in our church. There's ways all around this church, that that's happening now. That, that we cared well for the sick in our church, for the poor, that there wasn't anybody here who had a need, that we met needs among us. Wouldn't that be a phenomenal testimony if, if somebody who didn't know, who didn't attend Parkview could say, I don't know anything about them, but I know they understand love. And remember, the only way we have any hope in copying the love of Jesus is if we are continually Connected to the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you um, just for this opportunity to kind of recalibrate, Lord, and examine our life. And Lord, just the idea that there are things that you spoke to your disciples that are of absolute um, fundamental nature to their Christian walk, Lord. I pray that we, as we seek to walk in obedience, Lord, I pray that our heart's desire would be to focus on those. That you would show us the grace of allowing us to see our lives, allowing us to see areas that we aren't obeying you, to see areas that we aren't, people that we aren't loving the way we should, times that we aren't loving like we should be. Lord, allow us to see that. Um, Lord, we pray that as we figure out and commit to this, what can be sometimes messy work of loving one another, Lord, our hope and our prayer is that you would be the one who would be glorified.